Welcome to Hogan Mystique, where we explore inspirational stories that embody the strength and resilience of Mr. Hogan. I am Ben Hogan Foundation CEO, Judd Pritchard. My co-host is Director of Operations, Josie Gregory Stankowitz. Well, you're in for a treat today. We have two longtime Shady Oaks members and Ben Hogan Foundation board members, Brent White and Fred Reynolds, as they tell us personal Hogan stories and how he inspired them. All right, welcome to the Hogan Mystique podcast. We're here with Brent White and Fred Reynolds, two Shady Oaks, longtime Shady Oaks members, and um, also Ben Hogan Foundation board members. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank, Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Josie has our kind of icebreaker question. We always ask the same, the same question. Um, you can answer one at a time, or at the same time, I don't know, whatever you want to do. Um, <laughs> what's keeping you up at night? Fred? What's keeping me up at yeah. night? Good question. Um, not much. I sleep pretty well. Oh, that's good. Uh, probably uh, most the, what bothers me the most now is what's going on over in Europe. That, yeah. that bothers me the most. Wakes me up during the morning, early morning. Yeah, it's stressful. Uh, what bothers me or keeps me up is what used to keep up Fred when he had two teenagers in the house. Uh, two teenagers in my house is what keeps me up, worrying about you know what's going to happen next and. You understand what I'm talking about, Fred. You, you, you never quit worrying about them. <laughs> mine, mine are in their 30s, and I'm still worried about them. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. Well, so we wanted to have you guys in here today to talk about um, Mr. Hogan and kind of your life experiences with him. And you all b- both have kind of different experiences, so I thought it was kind of interesting to have both of you in here. Um, for, for those listening, uh, Mr. Hogan's home club was Shady Oaks, which, um, Fred, how long have you been a member at Shady Oaks? Since 1983. Okay, 1983 as a member, then you worked there in high school? Uh, yes, from 72 to 75. Okay. And then, Brent, you you were a started from the bag boy and then worked your way up to, uh, to head pro. And then now a member, it's like, you're like Drake. You started from the bottom, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The title of my book is Bag Room to the Boardroom. I like it. So I haven't written the book, but uh, <laughs> I've got a lot of content. Uh, yes, I just kind of showed up in 90 knowing nothing about Shady Oaks. And uh, I was a TCU student and a you know struggling wannabe college golfer. And uh, I knew I needed income. And I had worked at golf courses growing up. And you know I just kind of showed up there knowing nothing about it. And the main thing I didn't know was that Ben Hogan was a member. And I worked there for a few weeks probably before I figured that out. Okay. Did, did you know who Mr. Hogan was? Sure. Okay. I mean, as a golfer, I mean, yeah. you go yeah. back to 1990 and, you know, uh, as a student of the game yeah. and, you know, in, in my era, it was it was Jack Nicholas, you know, it was Seve Ballesteros and mm-hmm. kind of those type of guys. But, you know, uh, golf magazines was, was where you learned and doing th- things yourself, no internet. So, so certainly he was he was a basis for uh, the swing at that time, and really continues to be. So, but the interesting part is is that you didn't see pictures of him later in life. He wasn't a public figure after his playing career was over. So, conceptually, I didn't. I probably outside of maybe a Golf Digest article where he might have been pictured uh, how he looked later in life, didn't have a concept of what he looked like. So again, no internet, think about it, not on TV, not a public figure, um, you know? And so my first interaction was with him. I kind of had to say, who is that? Right. So Fred, and you get, you said you got there in 72 as a bag boy, is that right? right? So that was kind of, he was 
he just retired basically from competitive golf or was he still playing a little bit or no he was he had just finished okay. maybe the year before was his last tournament i believe it was a colonial i think that's right i think that's right uh the first summer i worked for him in august he turned 60. okay yeah 1972 so that's about so when you say you work for him what what did that entail uh either shagging or uh, walking nine holes and he'd hit three balls on each hole okay yeah he uh never caddied for him when he played 18. okay so when when he played three balls was he did he play all three out to 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 a score or did he um was it kind of a you know, I hear some of these pros do like a worst ball scramble. Did he do that kind of thing, or just he was trying different shots? No, or? he hit all three balls okay. and putted all three out. Okay, okay. And how, you know, you always hear about it, consistency. How similar were those three balls? I mean, you know, it, it seemed like from what I hear about Mr. Hogan, it's going to be basically hitting the same three shots over and over and over again. Is that kind of what it was, or was he trying different things? It was. And now that you've asked that question, I don't remember ever having to go in the rough <laughs> to get his balls. <laughs> and, and there was, you know, a few times he, he hit one in the trap around the green, but most of the time they were on the green. Wow. Yeah. There That's was a, one time, I, I tell this story a lot when I take guests out and we're playing the back nine, and he was hitting the ball really good that day. And I didn't pay attention until we got to 14, which is a par five. He birdies all three balls. We go to 15, which is the next par five. He has two eagles and a birdie. And then we go to 16, he hits all his shots, which is a par three. And I believe he hit an eight iron, and they were all within five feet. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So, so nine holes worth of, so he's on those balls. I'm just trying to go in my head there. He was he's like, eight or nine under. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. for fun. Yeah. 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 How often would he play when you were there? Those nine holes? Mm -hmm. it, I think at least. Um, once or twice a week he would do that you know that's when his knee was really starting to bother him and he he usually walked the back nine because it's less hilly mm -hmm. than the front nine but um, sometimes he'd go the front nine but yeah i'd say two to three times a week was walking and and because uh, that was the way he was getting his exercise and mm -hmm. playing those three balls and uh and then the other days he was hitting shag balls i think he was at at least six days a week he six was doing days. something wow so i'm going to ask our listeners not to do any math here but so how old were you in 1972 uh turned 15 okay that summer so 15 and then so how, how do you how does a 15 year old catch mr hogan's eye that or, or do you volunteer for that or how, how does that work where you you get that opportunity well art hall usually sends send you out there. okay yeah and art yeah. was the the, the, the head, pro the head pro at that okay okay so, um, what, what, what about you? You think um, made made you an ideal fit for him? I didn't say anything to him. And I asked Art one time, either, uh, you know, one. I said, "Why am I always going out?" You know, it's it's interesting. You're you're a 14, 15 year old boy, and the reason I went out to Shady Oaks is I was really starting to get into golf, and my dad said to me, he says. He said, if you want to get good at golf, you need to go get a job at Shady Oaks because they allowed bag boys to play mm -hmm. all the time when they weren't working. And uh, and so I went out there, applied for a job, got it. And um, and I think I've been there two weeks. And, and he said, uh, Art said, you're going to shag balls for Mr. Hogan today. Mm -hmm. And so by year two or three, you know, 
why am I doing it all the time? He says, well, because you don't say anything. That's what Art Hall told me. <laughs> <laughs> and you knew who he was? Oh, yeah. 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 But, you know, I was trying to get better at golf mm -hmm. and my time off was, I mean, because you were really basically clocked out when you went out to caddy for Mr. Hogan oh, or Shag Balls. So, uh, you know, that's my time I wanted to go hit balls myself. It was, you know, uh, somewhat selfish at that time. Uh, but uh, now as an adult and, and the mystique of Mr. Hogan, it right. was quite an honor. I mean, it was yeah. something that a lot of people don't get to do. I have a question for both of you. What was your first impression of Mr. Hogan? Well, I was probably so nervous, uh, just kind of being in the same space with a golf icon. You know, I, I think for me, it was, it was just, I was just in awe because number one, my first interaction, I didn't even know that he was a member at all. I mean, I grew up in New Orleans. So, you know, as a you know, kid in, in Texas and in Fort Worth at the, during your time, that was going to be someone that you always looked up to. Um, so for me, when this older gentleman was walking through the golf shop on a Monday uh, evening uh, in, a, in a suit, top hat with two Neiman Marcus bags that I found out later were filled with shoes he had shined. And he was exiting, he used to exit the club through the golf shop on Mondays. Uh, the assistant pro, who by the way was Chip Graham, oh, a former uh, a member of the team with the foundation, but he said, good night, Mr. Hogan. And I said to myself, what did he say? I said, was that Ben Hogan? He goes, sure, you idiot. I mean, did you not know? I said, I had no idea. And that was my first realization that, you know, maybe I'm somewhere kind of special. I mean, I knew it was a nice club. I knew the members were all wealthy, but did I know, I did not know that that was his own club. And from that day forward, I kind of came to work with a little bit different, uh, not attitude, but a little different focus, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I realized Mike's connection, you know, Mike Wright's, uh, the then head pro's connection with him. And mm -hmm. you, it's easy to get wrapped up in. How old were you at that time? I was a freshman at TCU, so I was 18. And I was, you know, that I showed up in like November. Mm -hmm. And as you know, from working in the back room, I mean, it's hard. Those hours, those daytime hours are tough to get covered when your high school kids are back in school. Yeah and you're trying to get your daytime. So college kids need to work there that, that have more flexibility with their schedule. So they hired me. Uh, I had experience, but I'd never had experience working at a country club. I worked at a public course, but they hired me and I started, you know, cleaning clubs next to Tim Mauser at the yeah. time, wow. who was, who was, a uh, you know, a single double a pitcher that had the winners off and just did that to kind of have something to do. And so it's when you think about how long ago that was now, you know, I'm kind of I feel like I'm kind of on a life sentence, you know, <laughs> but it's a good place to get stuck if you're going to get stuck anywhere. That's right. true. And friend, what was your first impression? Uh, you know, that first time that uh, Art Hall sent me out with him, you know, when I was 14, going to be 15 later that summer. I, you know, I don't think I was nervous. I just didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. This one out, you know, it, think about it. he was six, going to turn 60. So he's 59. I'm 65 now. Um, he just seemed like one of the older members that, okay, I'll go out there and shag balls for Mr. Hogan. Now, when um, uh, my family belonged to Rivercrest that time and I'd go back to hit some balls at Rivercrest and the old pro there, he was older than Mr. Hogan, uh, Paul Smith. He uh, 
well, what did he say to you? I said, I didn't say anything. Oh, were you nervous? Well, I didn't really think about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, what did he do? And I said, we go out there and he, I was holding the shack bag and he'd just point to the ground where he wanted the balls dumped and that's what I did. Wow. Yeah, so I, you know, I can't remember that I was really nervous at that time. I, I don't think I knew any better right. to be nervous. Did anything about him surprise you? I mean, it always just seems like that Mr. Hogan is part of the Hogan mystique, I guess, is that he is who we think he is, right? And, and um, so, but I don't know. I didn't know him personally. So I, did anything about him surprise you? That The humor. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, he, he liked to, uh, you know, you hear about the needle, like in golf, you get the needle, you know, where someone's really going to try to get in your head. And he, that was maybe sport for him was to uh you know try to get under your skin but in a humorous way not offensive in any way but i think that you know shady oaks was probably one of the few places that he felt completely comfortable i mean he really wanted to be a member just like anybody else he he, not that he wanted to be left alone so i think he liked to interact with people but he was funny i mean and he liked to joke and kid and i think that's that's a lot of the what doesn't come out because they you know you, you think of it stoic doesn't say much but when he, when fred was with him that was business i mean maybe his playing career had come to a to an end but he was kind of the you know his two hands was the research and development for the ben hogan club company so he might have been out there trying equipment you know making sure that it passed through his hands mm-hmm. so you know for him that ground was sacred and he didn't mess around i suppose that's true. I mean, that was, you know, he'd just been off the tour maybe a year when I was caddying for him and shagging balls. And that's right. He was, um, uh, he was still honing his game and, and perfecting it. And also he was, you know, trying, you know, he had his, his, uh, club company, the Hogan golf club company, and he was, he was taking some prototypes out and he was testing them. And so it was, it was still business and, yeah. you know, uh, I, you know, because I didn't say much to him, every once in a while we'd get a new bag boy in and Art would give him a chance and I'd see him walking up 10 fairway and the young man was just yakking in hmm. Mr. Hogan's ear. I'd be back on the bag the next day. Yeah. Uh, so, sense. you know, that was the thing. He was, he was, he was serious, but he did have a, a, a humor. There's a funny story. I was in the bag room and there was a, uh, a guy that was older than me, his name was David Featherston, and they called him Flash, and he'd been a bag boy for a long time, and he was slowly working his way through school, And, and but he and Hogan had a, a pretty special relationship. I mean, they, they'd needle each other, just like he said. And uh, David comes in the, the bag room, and I was cleaning clubs, and he just finished shagging for Mr. Hogan. He's holding his shoulder. He said, gosh, I'm, I lost one in the, in the sun, and it hit me right here. I went straight to the ground and Mr. Hogan kept hitting at me. He said, I was, I had my hands over there and he just, you know, he just, cause they were, they were buddies. And, uh, you know, David was probably in his, his mid twenties at that time and working hard to try to get through school. And, but he, he loved working there. And, uh, it was the funniest thing that they just, that was Mr. Hogan. He just, he knew if it was me, he probably would have stopped and come and yeah. checked on me. But since it was David, he just started hitting balls around him. Sounds like That's maybe it wasn't the first time that he hit. Yeah, yeah. The, the the secondary target, shag yeah. bag being the primary target, the person, <laughs> but and the person didn't know when the target shift shifted, right? Right. Oh, that's right. The, the actual shag 
Shag boy. So when you became the target, you better be paying attention. You got to pay attention. Yeah, that's one thing he said to, to you know, he'd say, now go out there and pay attention. And, um, it, you know, it's really, you know, that shag bag was right next to you. And when that, sometimes those balls would fly right in that shag bag and mm -hmm. that sound, shoot, it was pretty neat. Yeah. So I've always heard the story about, and I don't know if it was you or some other, somebody else <coughs> that was shagging for him that decided they were going to be a little bit more, um, um, athletic with it, with chasing down kind of, um, you know, catch him on the one hop and that kind of thing. And, mm. and that was a no, no, or catch him on the why, I guess. Right. So, yeah, one time, uh, during the colonial, all the colonial, the, the pros, uh, on the tour at that time that played on his, uh, staff on the Hogan staff, they'd come out and they were allowed to hit balls out shady Oaks. And one evening I was dragging the range and, uh, John Mahaffey's caddy had taken a big towel out of the locker room, a big bath towel, and he had wetted it. And he was catching Mahaffey's shots like it was, it was uh, like he was fielding a baseball. <laughs> and so next day, I thought that'd be a great idea. I'd just start doing that. So I took the towel and I started catching. And uh, after about 10 balls, I get called in. And uh, and I thought, uh oh, I'm done. Literally but, got caught to the But mind. instead, he, he sat me. <laughs> instead, he sat me down in the uh, in the cart, and he grabbed my hand, and he and he held it, and he showed to me. You know, I was a teenage boy. I don't know. I can't remember if I was 15 or 16 at that time. He uh, he he just said, "These bones in your fingers are very small, and they're easy to break, and they're hard to heal." He said, so let it bounce on the ground and pick it up. Hmm. Oh, so he was more concerned about my well-being than my messing up his practice routine. Yeah, that's yeah. sweet. That's great. Yeah. What part do you think was um, his, or what part did he think was the best part of his game? Uh, I think his iron play. What do you think, Brent? I, I, he could hit the irons. You know, it's so, funny that uh, the people that, you know, the people that were still around when I was there um, as an employee that played with him would tell you that he had another gear, you know, that he, he was, I guess back in those days, you know, he had a, a, a book called power golf, but was he, was he a power player? He was a precision player, but uh, I can think about people that said, have said that he'd be hitting it the same distance with everybody else. And then when needed, he might have 30, 40 yards, kind of extra in reserve um but not lose any of the precision so I, I think i think that uh you know he was a powerful you know i never got to see him hit a ball but when you look at and you and you and you hear anecdotally you know the the strength of the hands and the strength of the legs and 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 how he kind of used those assets to you know create power um uh, that it was it was uh definitely not something that you would have said oh he's a power player but I think he was a powerful, strong person. Yeah. So we're going to give somebody a compliment they don't deserve now, but what player right now would you say most reminds you of Hogan? I mean, I, I don't think there, he's a one of a kind guy. We all know that, but is there a guy out there you go, wow, he has a lot, some of those attributes I saw maybe in the focus or maybe in the, in that kind of extra gear or just the way they, they manage their way around the golf course that kind of shows a little bit of that Hogan spark. I've got one that I, I, and it's, 
really recent is John Rom, hmm. and it's it's uh, I think when you um, when you think about um, the the style of the swing uh, to a certain extent, the repeatability of the swing, um, and and maybe you know kind of positionally in the swing, not exactly what you see from today's players. You know, there weren't a whole lot of people. People wanted to try to figure out what Mr. Hogan was doing different than they were, and there was a lot of things. But when I, I, I the precision ball striking is something that you don't see in today's game as much because it's kind of this bomb and gorge kind of mentality. But Ron really keeps it uh, between the sticks a whole lot better. And if it's if it's missed uh, at all, it's very little. Now, what what's not common about the two is the 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 style in which they present themselves. You know, as far as John Rom's kind of volatile and he kind of wears his emotions on the sleeve. He's a Spaniard. But yeah, thinking right, about just right. the game itself yeah. and, the, and the way in which he hits his tee shots and the way in which he hits his approach shots and the way in which he manages his game is pretty similar if you think about it. You know, I never would have thought of that, but I think you're, that, that rings true to me. It just because I, when I, John's always in control, it seems like, even though he is kind of a, I mean, he's a big guy, so he's powerful, but he, his iron play is outstanding and, Two times it's, it's a little flatter, you know. You yeah. think about you think about the, you know, the, kind of the approach and the and the and the and the plane that the club's being swung on. You know, John Rahm's getting it in a, in a similar kind of spot in some of these positions that you if you kind of I've never done it, but if you kind of frame by framed it, I bet you'd see a lot of similarities um, in the way in which they use the ground and the way in which they use their feet and their legs and um, and and the results in a in a. 2020, 2020, 2023 versus in the 50s equipment differences and all that. But when you kind of just boil it down, he's it, it's very similar. We may have to get Lindy to put him up on side by side and walk us through that sometime. That's I mean, right. That'd be a good one. Um, you know, John's a two time Hogan Award winner, too. So he's only one. So I guess we got something right there. That's so, right. No question. How about you, Fred? Well, I, you know, I thought John Rahm at first and, and the reason is as a good point, Brent, is is either two or three years ago out at Colonial, uh, it was a Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, we had the pros hitting, uh, I can't remember if it was Hogan Foundation, the first tee, we had the pros hitting uh, Mr. Hogan's driver. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they had a video from the backside of John Ron swinging, and then somebody put it, I don't know if it was Robert or who, but somebody put it side by side to Hogan. Mm -hmm. It was really, really, it was, yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think you need to ask Robert about that. I will. I, I, it was yeah. either Robert or Kevin Long showed me that. And I, wow, from you know from the back is yeah. pretty much the swing plane was the same, just like you had said. Everything was pretty much the same. That's interesting. We'll find yeah. it and put it. We'll run it over what we just spoke yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. But um, you know, I I would go more towards uh, maybe those that are more uh, like. You know, like I said, John Rahm uh, is a little bit wears his emotions on sleeve, and I'm thinking of more stoic players. You know, and I, uh, there's not too many out there right now. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, the, that's who I. You know, maybe Justin Thomas. You know, maybe maybe Rory is. You know, he's a gentleman mm -hmm. out there, and that's yeah. that's the way Mr. Hogan was. You know, he uh, Hogan used to say, and I just read this, but he said um, it was. His, you know, it wasn't his responsibility to visit with those that he's playing with, but it was his responsibility to know where their balls went. 
you know, when, when their balls landed somewhere, it was his responsibility to keep up with that to, to help them along yeah. during the, the play. But it was not his responsibility to visit and chit-chat with those that he's playing with. You know, and I always think that he probably gets a, a raw – deal as far as um, public perception because of that, because of, you know, our idea of what a quote unquote good guy is, is the gregarious guy out on the on the uh, course that may be volatile and maybe, you know, um, hard to get along with in real life. But he just seems like he's a lot of fun versus a guy that's just out there doing his job, which you expect him to do. And maybe he's a little quieter. And, um, you know, it seems like that I've heard a lot of a lot of stories from people that didn't know Mr. Hogan that talk about, oh, he was, you know, aloof or whatever, whatever word they want to use. And then I hear stories from guys like you and you hear this really warm side about him that that is he was a really serious golfer, but he had a great sense of humor. And he took took a concern over my hand when when he didn't need to, when he right. could have just said, hey, idiot, stop catching the ball. I'm hitting it or whatever. Right. But he didn't do right. that. So I just think that's you know, that's part of our mission with this podcast is to kind of tell those stories about why he's different than what, what public perception is. I think, you know, in these days of everybody's got to build a brand and he built it basically out of the dirt, as he says, and not, not on TV, not on YouTube. It's kind right. of a different, different, um, he's a different celebrity, I guess, is the way it goes. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Probably, and probably never saw himself that way. I mean, he, you talk about building a brand, you know, he had to, <laughs> he had to invest in his actual brand and, and, and built to build a, a golf club company that started, you know, in 1953, you know, was when he started that. And then that year, you know, he had an incredible year of golf at the same time that he's trying to start a, a club company. What other player and these guys have, you know, business ventures, you know, and different things they're involved with that they're attaching their name to. And, and he felt strongly that if he, if he was going to attach his name to a golf club company, they were going to be the best. If they weren't good enough for him, they weren't going to be good enough for any of us. And he took that seriously. And he was launching that at a time where, you know, you said his last competitive round was in 72. Well, you know, 53, there's a big distance there that there was a lot of golf that was still to be played in his career at that time. And he was a late bloomer in his career. So in 53 was an incredible year. And you think about the pressure he was under with whether it be investors or whether it be the pressure he was putting on himself to produce this elite golf club. And he did that. I mean, that, that, that equipment, you know, he didn't pick his, the, the staff members that played those clubs light. I mean, he took that seriously. And there was probably other people that would pay the pros more money than the, you know, Ben Hogan company would, but he made sure that he picked people that, he felt good good about that we're going to be responsible with mm -hmm. these tools that he was making to be the best in the world right well, and i think it, your story about how he walked through and you didn't know who he was i just can't imagine um a i mean a, a, one of the you know the, without argument one of the top three golfers of all time these days walking through a golf shop and 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 not wanting to well, be noticed I mean, glasses hat full suit top 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 sure. coat you know, there, there was no, and I'm, I was, a, I mean, I'm still, I was a professed golf junkie. I mean, you couldn't put, but this, you know, I mean, it was just another member kind of passing through, you know, back in those days, we were open on Mondays, every, every day at 12 on Mondays. And I didn't know his, what his patterns were, but after that day, then I tried to figure out where he was, you know, and what his kind of 
what he did and he, he had a routine that he that he went through as far as coming to the club you know he he would uh you know there the office in those days was on Pafford Street mm -hmm. over in South Fort Worth but down below TCU and um so this would have been the early 90s and his routine was to go to the office you know he got a ton of stuff to sign in the mail and 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 I don't think you understand how much we're talking about but like an insane amount of of stuff you know posters magazines whatever it was that was were sent to his office and he spent hours every morning signing stuff right. at his office because in those days you know it wasn't you know the company had been around for a long time it might have changed ownership hands but he still went to his office every day and that and that was till about 11 o'clock he'd come to the club around 11 30 um leave around four but he would have lunch and he'd be kind of at his you know the famous ben hogan round table with the lazy susan in the middle and it looked out over 18 green and nine green and he would and people would kind of maybe come up during the day and sit down with him chit chat um but about three or four times a day now what replaced the ball hitting which you're talking about was exercise was keeping his you know bad circulation in his legs so after he stopped hitting balls during this time, he would walk um, in his full suit and everything. And he would, he would about three or four times a day, he would walk from that spot, which was behind 18, up 18 fairway on a big cart path, all the way to 12 T and back. Oh, wow. Take a shower, go sit down. And then, you know, but if he sat for too long, his circulation would get bad. So that was his exercise. And he did that a few times a day so you might be playing 18 and you look over there he is <laughs> you're playing 12 there he is and and you're thinking maybe he was watching maybe he wasn't but mm -hmm. that puts some extra pressure on your <laughs> yeah. on your swing and your yeah. shots and knowing that and he might stop and kind of look <clears throat> over and see and try to try to figure out and watch you so you felt a little extra pressure hitting that shot that approach shot on 18. and his circulation was that was from the car wreck, right? Right, yeah, right. Just... And so he'd walk. And that's, you know, he got to a point in time, I guess, in the late 80s, um, before I got there, unfortunately, that he just concluded his practice. Mm -hmm. It was too painful and um, it took too much of a toll on his body. Mm -hmm. So to replace that and to, to get exercise and create circulation in his legs, he would he would uh, exercise, he'd walk. And that's what he did. And, and, and he didn't. You know, at that time there was there was there was an LPGA player named Chris Jetter, mm -hmm. who had a special relationship with him, and she was active in her career, and he used to like to help her and watch her hit balls. And then there's uh, Tom Byron was out there, mm -hmm. and Tom Byron was on the Ben Hogan staff, as was Chris, and so he he he'd kind of get involved with him a little bit. And at the time, you know, Tom Byron would have been you know similar height, similar weight you know, had us had that stoic approach and, and really modeled his swing and everything he did, never didn't wear a glove. You know, he played Hogan equipment and he was he was at that time the closest thing that you could come up with and he happened to, to play kind of out of Shady Oaks. And for a while, for a few years he was there. So he would go out and watch them hit balls, but never did I see him ever hit one, unfortunately. Okay. I would I would have done anything to have the experience that Fred had, for sure. You know, it's probably I I only have one personal Hogan interaction and it was um, probably about that time when you just started there because I, I was a, a kid and I was you know 13 or 14 and we played a NTPGA tournament at Shady Oaks and on the first tee I remember the the um, NTPGA official said when you finish up 18 you're going to see Mr. Hogan 
on in in the window there don't wave at them don't go knock on the window don't do all, all this kind of stuff and i mean they scared us you know like mm. w what happens if we accidentally make eye contact with what them or whatever you know, you know we're gonna get thrown right out of here <laughs> and right. and um we finish up 18 we're coming up 18 and he's standing on the back of the green and he comes over and shakes all our hand mm. and one of the kids said they told us not to talk to you and he said those guys don't know what they're talking about i'll talk to any kid i want to you know kind of thing and, right. and it just kind of and i remember my dad on the way home said that is a completely different hogan than what people think it is and there's really kind of a neat story about it. i told lisa his his grandniece about the great niece about that and she said you know that's the that's the uncle ben i know not that not the one that people tell the story about oh, don't yeah. look at him you know no. so um, anyway well did, did um i've also heard the story too about um, I don't know, who, you know, you hear different names, but you, you said the guys that played his clubs. I've also heard the, the stories about the guys that didn't play his clubs that came to ask him, hey, will you look at my swing? And I think it's one of the great needle remarks of all time. I, I don't know if you know that story, but. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, we don't want to name names, but I've, I heard that story too. And, you know, I, well, what staff you play on? And he said, will you look at my swing? And he said, well, what staff you play on? Well, I, play on Spalding. He says, well, go ask Mr. Spalding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, I, I think that, uh, you know, the people that had a relationship with him, you know, the colonial week was always a fun week when Mr. Hogan was around mm -hmm. because the people that knew him the best knew, knew how to get back to where he was. And, and during the week of colonial, um, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday, or maybe even after their round, you know, they would go back and, and who, who am I talking about? You know, Ben Crenshaw, Ken Venturi, you know, Pete, Ken Venturi was doing the golf for CBS at the time. Um, anybody that had a relationship that wanted to come say hello um, would always, they, uh, Ken Venturi one day just came through the golf shop in the back room. He knew exactly how to get back to the, to the, to the men's grill where Mr. Hogan was. And he didn't really even say anything, just darted back there. And a couple hours later, you know, came through and um, then other people might come practice there early, early in the week in hopes that they would maybe interact with him. Um, there was a, uh, extremely famous, uh, golfer that we won't name names, but he was a, uh, European tour player that played Mizuno equipment that was yearning, uh, to try to win the U S open. And he figured the best way to do that was to come and visit with, uh, the king of the U S open Ben Hogan and figure out what he did differently than everybody else. Uh, and he, I think he, he kind of built this whole day where he thought I'll go to the office. He'll really want to engage with me because why wouldn't he want to do that? And then we'll, then we'll go to the club and, and I'll go out there and he'll want to watch me hit balls. And I think the, from Mr. Hogan's vantage point, I don't think he understood what's, what am I going to tell him? I mean, this guy knows how to hit all the shots. What is he going to get from me? Just because he kind of discounted his own ability his own fame and he was pretty far removed from his playing career. So I just don't think in cases like that, whether they played the equipment or not, I don't think he understood what they were looking for. You know, he might say something like, you know, shoot the lowest score. And then, and then they'd be off put by that. And there's no secret sauce or magic that he could give a player like this, that it was had endless accomplishments. So I think that player that day, the day didn't turn out the way that he wanted. I think he spent some time hitting balls in the little nine and I don't know that Mr. Hogan ever felt comfortable enough to, to go out there and, and engage with him because they had had a little short session before that in his office and where I think he kind of thought it was over, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and if to, for this guy, he, he had built the rest of this day to kind of include him actually watching him hit balls. Yeah.
didn't happen. Yeah. Fred, how was he, as you got more and more uh, comfortable around him, or he, I guess he got more comfortable around you, did y'all have, did, was he very forthcoming about golf tips or anything like that? Or, you know, not really. He, uh, one time I was uh, just, I guess I was, I was waiting for him to come in, or maybe I wasn't, but for some reason I was in the golf shop and I was taking some practice swings. There was an area I could take a full swing and he actually walked in and I, my, I immediately put the club up. He said, no, no, let me see. And I took a couple of swings for him and he just looked at me and says, not bad. Oh, <laughs> that was, well, he, he did good <laughs> yeah, that was it. You know, um, going back to, you know, how he was perceived when we'd go out in this, especially in the summertime to shag, uh, shag balls on the little nine, he was going to hit balls. We would be, be driving by the swimming pool or there'd be kids playing out on the, on the course. He would always stop and watch them. And he got used to get the biggest smiles just watching kids since he didn't have his own mm -hmm. out just playing or around the swimming pool playing. He would, he would actually stop the cart and just watch them for a while, hmm. watch kids and get the biggest smile. And, and you know, he, he, he loved animals. He had a, 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 there was a club dog. Was it Max? Max then Buster. Yeah, then Buster. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he really took a, took he had a, a kind heart, you know, he very, very, very soft side that I think was uh, an emotional side, you know, one that uh, possibly watching kids getting to do things that maybe as a kid that he didn't get to do, right. you know, having his, I hate to say his childhood kind of robbed from him, but his childhood yeah. robbed from him, you know, yeah. more or less uh, having him become a man pretty quickly. And uh, getting in the workforce pretty quickly, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, trying to follow his dreams and do all these things. Probably it, it, it touched him to see kids being kids. Yeah. Right? And, and in his day, it was harder, you know, uh, for, for kids to be kids. And his his personal situation, his family was different probably yeah. than most people that he came in contact with. And I'm sure it had a lot to do with probably him did. stopping and taking it all in all the time like that. Right. I think he, you know he's he's underrated as far as his effect on growing the game too, and a lot of that is getting young kids like you out there to shag balls for him, helping out kids with those kind of things. Even just talking to you know fools like me on 18 green like that, just that was a, a moment for for me where I was like, wow, this this game's pretty special. But <clears throat> I don't know, I don't I don't know any kid my age that grew up playing golf that didn't play. Hogan Radial Juniors. I mean, that was just the club to play at the time. And I think that that was probably the only junior set out there, at least maybe in this area. Maybe that's what it was. But, um, you know, as we look for ways to, it, it's kind of struck me that you said, your dad said, if you want to learn to play golf, golf go to Shady Oaks because they let you play golf. And I, I think that, you know, we've kind of lost that as far as um, golf goes, is that, you know, as it becomes more exclusive and this and that, we kind of don't allow for those opportunities as much anymore. I, I think Shady Oaks, I think, still does a good job of that. Um, but I know the other clubs that don't. And, and um, I think a lot of that's kind of probably the Hogan um, uh, um, example of, you know, th this game's for everybody. It's not just for the rich kid, but it's for the kid that grew up down at Glen Garden caddying and, and like you say, had his childhood ripped for, from him. So I think that's... Uh, yeah, when I was a bag boy, I know that working, uh, you know, Mike Wright was the head pro. And, I, and, and it wasn't a foregone conclusion that you got to play. I can promise you that. Uh, at that time, it was, it was earned. And yeah. it, it, was, it was definitely something that, you know... Um, if you wanted to kind of have, and I, I hate, I hesitate to even say playing privileges, but any kind of practice privilege, you better, 
if you were a member of the staff at that time, you know, um, bag boy, shop assistant, whoever, um, that was something that you earned and that was something that could get taken away pretty quickly. Yeah. If you, if you kind of went out there and didn't handle yourself the right way. And, um, I, I remember being out there as a young bag boy and not walking on eggshells, but definitely minding my P's and Q's and, and, and feeling like that, you know, this space was, was really not meant for me necessarily, but I have this access that I've got to make sure. And then as you kind of get into it and you, and you like in, in my case, you know, I started working more and working more. And next thing you know, I'm kind of like accidentally work my way into a career in the golf business yeah. by total accident. And that's kind of how I got into it. But it was, it was, it was valuing the time that I did have and not taking it for granted because you go out there and act the fool and do something wrong in a golf cart or hit balls into a green. You're not supposed to be hitting ball, whatever it is, you know, that could, that could all have changed pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I don't know how it works. I'm sure it works a similar way, way today, yeah. as far as it's not, you know, just cause you work here <laughs> doesn't mean that you're going to get to, to use it. And I'm sure the club was a little slower, you know, uh, and what well, it was pretty slow in the nineties when I, when I started, but at the same time, those, those privileges were not extended to everyone. Yeah. Yes. Those are good life lessons though. That Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 And you know, of course, if a, if a bag boy was out playing and, and did something wrong, he, he would lose those privileges yeah, too. Get so, back. Yeah. It was just, you all, everyone that came to work there had that opportunity. Some didn't even play golf. Some just yeah, right. needed a job and did that. But if, yeah, if you got out in the cart and messed around and, and uh, a member reported you were kind of on probation for a while and <laughs> lost that privilege. Right. Maybe never get back. Well, yeah. I mean, you mentioned <clears throat> Hogan's childhood, and and I always wonder, you know, uh, how we're guided by our childhood and our childhood experiences, and and you know, but for his ability to to go caddy at Glen Garden at the time, what 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 would that life have turned into? I think that's an unanswerable question, but it's just it's um, you know, so I I wonder how many other future Hogan's we have out there that we're not allowing those kind of opportunities to, um, because a lot of it's luck. I think, I think the, you know, you talk about getting, uh, the opportunity to, to shag balls, for Mr. Hogan, not everybody got a chance to, to caddy for Mr. Leonard, Mr. Moncrief at Glen garden at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Byron Nelson was also in the caddy yard. And I think that that relationship was special between, and I'm sure you've heard, you know, on, on another podcast with, um, Marty Leonard, Marvin Leonard's daughter talk about it, but that relationship was special. Mm -hmm. And it was just luck, pure luck that they were able to not only um, interact in the way that they were at the time, but develop a relationship and having them uh, mean so much to each other that, you know, needed a father figure, found a father figure, mm -hmm. you know, probably didn't know he needed a father figure, but possibly Mr. Leonard knew that he needed, he needed that. And they just kind of found, they found something in each other that was unique. And I think that that relationship might have forged, uh, you know, him into what he became yeah. in his uh, personal life, what he became in his right. golf career, certainly. Yeah. Um, and and what, could, what would it have been without that opportunity? Because I'm sure that a lot of kids in the caddy yard wanted to, wanted to get those bags. And there was a lot of competition for bags that they settled, they settled who got what bag in various ways. Mm -hmm. Some of it was physical, mm -hmm. you know, right. as far as, <laughs> you know, you, if you want that bag, you've got to fight me. Yeah. Or if you want that bag, you've got to win a 
kind of a long drive contest and, and, and those sorts of things were happening because there were certain bags that were better than others. Mm -hmm. Just like mm -hmm. at any club, there's certain people that are, you know, more generous than others. And, and you want to, you know, you want to make sure that you're in those positions to try to take advantage of those situations as you can as a young person. Yeah. Well, I think Fred, there's some luck probably in your, in your um, instance of that, what would you say the head pro's name was? Art Hall. Art Hall. Yeah. That Art identified you and said, you are, you know, you're going to get to go get the opportunity to go shag for Mr. Hogan. But there's also the, probably the same with Mr. Leonard and Mr. Hogan. Mr. Hogan didn't probably bother Mr. Leonard that much. And he did what he needed him to do, which is what you did for Mr. Hogan. So right. I, I wonder, you know, it kind of pays itself forward. That, that gave you opportunities to go on and have your own golf career at OU and other, other and, and this life you have largely that's owed to golf, I would think you would say. Right. So, so um, right. I, um, I guess, how did how did your time with Mr. Hogan kind of propel you forward into the, into uh, college golf and beyond? Well, it, you know, I, I think back, um, you know, I, I, if I remember correctly, I took two golf lessons from Art Hall and one lesson from Paul Smith out at Rivercrest in my whole growing up and the rest was just watching Mr. Hogan. So there's the <laughs> luck I had, mm -hmm. you know, when Art Hall, I mean, I was getting into golf and I was, you know, I wasn't very good. I won, you know, in the top five of the team after my freshman year. And so this is in between my freshman and sophomore year. And so I, you know, for three months there, got to watch him hit balls. And of course, like a lot of kids do, they, mimic somebody that they they're right. watching and that's kind of what i did and and i really you know i really didn't have but maybe three or four lessons my whole time growing up golf lessons right wow, that's amazing. on the job training yeah, yeah it was it was mm -hmm. so that's you know like you said luck i was mm -hmm. i was very fortunate front i was fortunate seat. my front row seat to yeah something pretty special happening yeah i was sure. fortunate my dad said well if this uh, sport you really want to pursue and, you know, I hear out at Shady Oaks, bad boys get to play golf. And uh, well, I, and I can't imagine the confidence boost that is as a young golfer when Mr. Hogan says pretty good when he sees you smoke. That's pretty good, right? That helped. <laughs> <laughs> Have you implemented any of his practice routine into your own? Uh, no, because I after college I quit practicing, <laughs> which was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he, you know, he taught. He, he would always, you know, he would he would always want to. Mr. Hogan always want to look at your hands. Yeah, yeah. And he would he would, he wanted to see. Oh, actually. Or the lack of your calluses. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and me, you know, and, and you know, you don't practice enough. That was all. That was always the comment because his hands, either when he even when he wasn't practicing, from all the years of practicing were like sandpaper, were very rough, and he didn't wear a glove, and he had the very coarse cord grips. And, and so if you're seeing that, the, the effects and the results of all the balls hit and all the time spent gripping and re-gripping, and if, and if you're supposedly in the game and trying to be a good player, and I feel your hands, you know, this is in his mind, and they're not rough and rugged, then you need to like do more practice and you don't, you don't hit enough balls. So, and that'll, that, that'll inspire you to like, oh, okay, next time I'm around him, I better have my, I better, I better have some calluses somewhere yeah, or yeah. else he'll criticize me again. I, I mentioned that to Lisa Scott a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about her interactions with uncle Ben, her uncle. And, uh, I said, yeah, when I, I 
distinctly remember when we're driving in the cart out to the little nine, his hands and his skin was, it was almost charred because he's been in the sun so long, Mm -hmm. but you could actually see what you're talking about, Brent, the calluses and the everything you never know, worn it yeah i mean, I mean it's like an iron worker but those were that that, yeah. that was his tools of the trade and that's, yeah. you know you t- hear about you know digging it out of the dirt you know he's doing it by hand yeah you know and that's yeah. not you know and um it showed i mean you, you could definitely and like i said it didn't go away yeah you know when he was already when he was done practicing the the hands were still very very uh you know worn and, and think about it i i just talked about i got to watch him and learn from watching him. Who did he watch? Yeah. Out at the out at Glen Garden. There's just no telling. Uh, there's yeah, no there's telling. No there's no telling where where the. <clears throat> I, I think it was, you know, uh, probably had a lot of natural ability, and mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, he 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 died. He self diagnosed. He self diagnosed yeah. his ball flight. He knew that the ball flight that he had was not competitive. Yeah. You know, when he was young on the tour mm-hmm. and he knew there were certain things that others could do that he couldn't. And I'm sure uh, there were people that he watched uh, in the in the early years that, you know, he went on a mission to try to figure out himself, you know, and with with no help, with no cameras, with no no watchful eye, no instructor. And he <laughs> went and taught himself how to not do the things that were keeping him from being as competitive as he became. I mean, and it's just, it was purely, you know, the ball can't do this. It's got to do that. You know, it's got, yeah. it's got to get in the air. It's got to stay in the air. And it's, it's, it's got to have, I've got to figure out how to put different curve on the ball. than I currently got too much curve one direction and he yeah. figured it out. But yeah, think about that, that was in his twenties and thirties where I was getting it in my teens. You know, I was seeing that in his teens and he didn't have that. Mm-hmm. He did we, not have you know, we we had a prior podcast with John Peterson and we talked a lot about kind of the lost art of golf because, I mean, even guys like uh, I'm a little older than John, but, you know, we didn't have TrackMan and, and, and he certainly didn't. And he didn't have, he had, you know, early blotta balls and persimmon woods and all that kind of stuff. And we, we talked about, you know, the guys now, the, the college players are so ready because they can come out and they put it on track man and they know exactly how to hit the shot after a couple times. Like, well, I just crank it up or do whatever and they can hit it high. I think the only way that Mr. Hogan could do it was to hit thousands and thousands of balls. And, 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 you know, the, the toll that puts on your body, um, the toll that puts on your mind to have to go out there and do that is just incredible. You know, it's just, it's a, but it's a different, that's why he could hit every shot. Probably is because he learned he learned how to do it himself. Right? And he liked to work. Yeah, I think he would say, you know, for for the in the rare interviews, you know, that are out there, and anybody that sat down with him, you know, I like to work, you know, and I would work and I would work, and there was no one that was going to outwork me, and and if and if and if someone did two hours, he did four. Yeah, you know, and he he just liked to work, and for him, the the art of hitting the golf ball was so much fun that it, it probably wasn't work. But he liked to work, and and he would he would not stop until he got it the way that he wanted it, and mm-hmm. you know famously saying there's not enough hours in the day, not not enough daylight to to hit as many balls as you have to, and the idea that if you if you missed one day of practice, kind of what that meant to try to catch back up to it to get to just where you were before you kind of missed that one day, mm-hmm. and and you think about it now, and you, you know there probably are a lot of practice rats out there, but they're. They're probably getting to their answers a little a little easier 
and they've got a whole team of people around them trying to try that yeah. that exists for you know them to be as good as they possibly can and and you know his yeah. team included his wife and you know whatever close friends he had in the tour were were uh if you knew you were his friend you, you probably were one of the few yeah. and you know there was there was a handful of people that he probably considered friends that they weren't trading secrets about you know how to play or what to do mm -hmm. but i know a lot of people um you hear about people stopping on the range and stopping what they're doing when he comes on the, on the range to watch him yeah because he was doing something different and they all wanted to try to figure out what was it about what he was doing that's so different than what i'm doing right. and he, but he wasn't going to allow for you know i remember i asked the old head pro at colonial Rollin harper i don't know if you guys remember him oh, yeah. but, but he's he was kind of my golf mentor and i asked him one time what do you remember what made mr hogan great and he, this is telling me as a 13 year old kid. And he told me, he said, Judd, he did two things. He was willing to work and he married well because she was willing to let him work. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought that was really, you know, kind of a sweet, sweet thing to say about Mrs. Hogan too, that, that you know, you've got to have both sides of that too. I mean, it's not a marriage podcast, but, yeah. but um, I, I guess we kind of run out of time, but I did want to ask yeah. one quick question and then I'll give it to Josie. But what is one memory you guys have? You may have seen a shot that you could say, man, I can't believe you pulled that off. Or, or, you, or you have a memory, your Hogan memory, if you, you say, I, I have one memory, I'm gonna tell my, my kids, grandkids, what would that be? Uh, well, you know, I, I've got a lot of memories. And, you know, if you're talking about a shot, um, one of the first times I was shagging for him and he calls me in and then we turn around and he wants to hit about a 10, 15 yard shot to one of the greens uh, on the little nine. And it was flat as a pancake, it was middle of summer. And he made that thing, you know, I started backing up thinking the ball was coming to me. I was on the green. It took two bounces and spun back five feet. <laughs> and he was only 10, 15 yards from wow, the green. That's incredible. Yeah. Just yeah. talk about learning how to do stuff. Right, right, right. But you know, it just, you know, we had a good relationship. He called me Sonny mm -hmm. and, um, and you know, he's just, he was always kind to me. You know, one day I was, uh, Art Hall told him I was not in a good mood. Uh, you know, I was a teenager, probably went out too late that night. And, but he, I said, you know, why, why do I need to go out? Well, he wants you to, on the bag today. So we go out and he said to me, he says, you're not in a good mood today. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm okay. And we get back in. He gives me 30 balls out of his shag bag, which are brand new for a, for a 15, 16 year old kid. That was great. So he was, you know, wonderful man. He, you know, he, the, the, the stoicness that's, you know, or the aloof, he, it was his business. Like Brent said, you know, he had to work at it and, uh, but he had a kind heart. He was a wonderful man. That's great. Yeah. My interactions were few and far between. I mean, it was either going to be uh, a chance meeting in the hall, mm -hmm. you know, where your paths cross. Um, you know, he would, uh, over the years, when you kind of got up the courage, I would go get different things signed. Sadly, getting it signed for other people in many, in, in many cases. And this would have been probably, you know, after being there for a couple of years where, where that was something that I could go do. But I, I was able to sit with him uh, at least on two or three occasions where he wanted to elaborate on on some things and the, the famous poster that was always getting signed was the they call it the victories poster mm -hmm. it's you know him at impact black and white picture with all his victories listed wow. below it he liked to look at those victories and talk about different things and 
he was very focused on the Hail American Open that he knows was the U.S. Open because he got the USG medal. But they had, it was during war times, and um, it was rec- it's he recognizes it as a, as a U.S. Open. He wanted to talk about that. He wanted to talk about tournament preparation, what you had to do to get ready for a tournament, and kind of go into some of his practice routines. And and I wish I could have remembered everything he said, but because mine were you know, Fred probably had them all the time, you know, but mine were few and far between. And maybe he came into the bag room because his clubs were still kept in the bag room, even though he wasn't, he wasn't practicing anymore, but he'd come in and he'd pick a club out and kind of waggle it and look at his clubs. And maybe if he felt like it, you know, he would, he would want to talk to you and find out about you or if if you like to play or, Mm -hmm. you know, you were a competitive golfer or whatever you were. So those interactions were fun. You know, and it, it it was sad when he was gone, and 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 those things weren't happening anymore. But you can still feel them around the club if you yeah. if you had that experience. You can you can uh, you hear about this aura or mystique or whatever, but it's still out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Brent White, Fred Reynolds, thank you so much for coming on the pod today, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in um, to the Hogan Mystique. You can find us on Instagram at Ben Hogan Foundation or at Facebook at Ben Hogan Foundation. If you have any further questions, please email us at info at benhoganfoundation.org. In the meantime, keep them in the fairway.